Hi, this is Dr. Shannon Wong-Lerner, host of The Intersection, where diverse folks converse. Created by and for queer people of color and gender non-conforming people, The Intersection is curated side by side with some of the most brilliant and fascinating minds in our community. I create these programs keeping in mind all of the things that aren't said and all of the things that we aren't able to talk about within heterosexual and cisgendered produced shows. In the intersection, you'll find firsthand what the leading voices of our community are thinking, the work they're producing, the concerns they have, and what they hope for us and what they leave behind in their legacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, you're here with The Intersection, episode six, and we're here with special guest, Scott Turner Schofield. And the, the title of our episode today is Countering the Fundamentalist Ripple with Trans Stories, Media, and Culture. Scott Turner Schofield is an Emmy-nominated actor, activist, and lead in Becoming a Man in 127 Easy Steps. So I'm so glad to have you with us, Scott. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So Scott and I actually, we curated this program together, and this is something that I do with all of my guests. And one of the main things that we wanted to talk about was how gender binary oftentimes is not seen as a form of fundamentalism. And so we wanted to discuss that is, you know, why is this not seen this way? How can we talk about this more in this way that would be helpful to bring out trans stories, media, and culture. And so I guess just to start out, um, I'd really love to just hear a little bit more about your main project right now and just to start talking about that. So I'd love to hear, I know this is a was an ongoing long-term performance that you did and you traveled all over the country and all over the world for 10 years, which to me is phenomenal. Sort of like my dream you know, my dream gig is to do something like that with a performance of mine as a performer. So I'd love to just hear what is becoming a man in 127 easy steps. And could you just give us like a quick synopsis? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, because it's such a long-standing project, it's it's hard to be quick about it. But um, <laughs> well, becoming a man in 127 easy steps was my third one-man show. Um, I started doing one-man shows in the early 2000s because as a transgender actor, I could only do one-man shows. There yes. were no acting parts for transgender actors. So I wrote my own. Uh, and uh, I, at that time, when I started creating the show in 2006, um, two things happened. One, the National Performance Network, which is an amazing activist artist-centered organization that takes money from the NEA, uh, you know, you know, big, you know, big money. Big, yes. And, you know, it's a, it's a it's a network across the country of of organizations that really focus on identity based art, on activist, you know, intended art. Um, so they gave me a creation fund commission and it was the first trans show that they did that for. Um, and. At that moment, I was like, well, okay, this is probably the best it's ever going to get for me. Uh, and so I'm going to, you know, and, and I'm probably going to have to only perform my own work for the rest of my life. Like, really, that was where we were in 2006. Yeah. 
there was just, I had, I could not fathom a world in which any trans person would be, much less me, would be, you know, have an Emmy nomination or any of that, yes. right? Like, so I was like, okay, I have these two shows. First one is about sort of discovering, you know, that the binary is not a thing actually, that this is much more complicated than that. The next one was about coming out and like, what is that, you know, how did that happen for me? And, and how is that like a constant process in our lives? And so this last one, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, I want it to be epic. Yes. And so I picked this like, and along with Esper Bergman, who uh, is a very good friend and, and colleague, he made the joke. He was like, you should do a joke called Becoming a Man in 127 Easy Steps. And we were joking because of that ridiculous number. It's just yes. so, it was like, ah, that's it. Actually, you know, I'll have 127 different stories so I can grow into this show for my whole life. You know, and when we premiered it in 2007, I had like 26 stories. You know, so the audience would call out numbers. Um, and if I, you know, if I didn't actually have a story for that number, I would just pick the closest story that I had, you know what I mean? And and so over all this time now, you know, in my own process, by 2006, I had, I had just started hormones. I had sort of changed my name a few years earlier. I was about five years into understanding my own, uh, my own transness, like to have coming out to you know, I came out to myself and all those things. So I was about five years in and I was just starting medical and legal and all that stuff in my transition. And now over all this time, you know, um, a lot has happened. So the, the story itself is, um, a chronicle of, you know, now what, almost 20 years of mm -hmm. being out as trans, which is significant. And this is the sure. thing we were talking about Elliot Page just before we started. He, you know, for for the sake of history, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Two days ago, Elliot Page was on the cover of Time magazine and he recently transitioned. And, you know, that's amazing. It's wonderful. It's fantastic to have somebody so high profile, um, you know, as a trans man out there, right? Because yes. still like trans masculine folks are just completely underrepresented and invisible in terms of, you know, in terms of representation in Hollywood and there and the ripple effect that that has, you know, so to have an Oscar nominated actor in such amazing movies as, you know, Inception and in the Umbrella Academy, like somebody who's really out there transition, right? Like is amazing, right? And Elliot will be the first to say that he is at the very beginning of this. This is just the, you know, like, yes. and the thing that I appreciate so much about Elliot is how he's been so circumspect and so like, he's not jumping in saying that he knows everything about being trans, right? And what's a shame is the media really just loves to only stay in this one place of transition, which would be like only covering humans as teenagers. Transition is a moment in time it is an adolescence period. It is a time of a lot of change and, and all those things. And then the rest of your life happens, okay? So Becoming a Man in 127 Easy Steps is like the first really big story to really do this, to say like, look, transition happened here and here's the rest, right? Yeah. Also, it takes on sort of me looking at my child childhood through the trans lens that I was denied having. So I'm looking at everything from the beginning, the moment of my birth, right? Or the moment of even my conception, right? Uh, saying, I believe I would have been trans no matter what body I was born in, right? Understanding trans as like an entire like, you know, way of being, we're born this way. And what happens 
after that, right? So it's this big, long thing. It was a one-man show. Now it's a, a movie. We're finishing up that. We're, so we, we wanted to make it so that, you know, this show has done, has like been in front of maybe 10,000 people, mm-hmm. right? We want to make it accessible in a way that anyone can, you know, can access it, can watch it, can, there's also a part that's, that you can read um, and listen to. So it's, it's sort of this whole sort of multimedia extravaganza that I am right in the throes, the last throes of getting ready and hopefully we'll be able to release it this year here in 2021 so that everyone can experience it. I love this idea that it's multimedia because because to me, in terms of transness and queerness and performance art, it's like, because we are in the intersection, it's like a great way to bring all of those things together tactily, but then also in terms of it being non-chronological and people being able to start at any period of your life. And perhaps, you know, there are people out there who are, you know, question, questioning their own uh, sexual identity and questioning their own um, identification and they might go to some part of your life where they are actually at. And so it's like, they are living their lives alongside you, which to me is, it's just a, such a beautiful, uh, it's such a beautiful message. And then such a beautiful, uh, form of art, like living art, which is what I think of performance art as, right? Exactly. Thank you. And yeah. a qu- queer aesthetic too, I think exactly. too. And it's something you only learn after being in it for a really long time. Yes. And then you only see in perspective. It's not something that I would have known to do the moment I transitioned. And to me that, and I never thought of it this way, but this 127 steps as compared to the very simplistic narratives that I think we've been talking about, Scott and I, and then also the intersection in general, is trying to get away from those. Even though it might be palpable for cisgendered or, you know, heterosexual folks, when they listen to it, uh, it's not, it's not expressive of who we are, right? It's not expressive of your experience and the shifting of your experience and the shifting of your life. And so, you know, breaking it down into five steps, which I'm sure plenty of people, (laughs) you know, ask you to do in, in your narrative when they interview you, uh, it provides so many more variables, which I just really love. Yeah. How, so I understand how it got started. And I understand some about the mission of the performance in the film. Uh, I love to hear more about, you know, what was going on in your life or perhaps, you know, thinking about like, cause there's so much to choose from. There's 127, any point, you know, that you sort of flash on even thinking about performance itself as, you know, when we perform, we are reliving and we are becoming that which we you know, which we express the characterization, but it's you. And so you're able to actually relive these moments every time you perform and you never know what it's going to be. And it's always different. So yeah, I really like, so it's like life itself. I'd love to hear just like, I don't know, one or two main moments where you were thinking about you had that like aha moment, you know, or something happened with someone in the audience, either be during or after. Uh, I just, I would really love to hear about that. Yeah. Well, so you brought this up too. Um, and I, one of my, one piece of my story is that uh, I did an internship for the performance artist, Holly Hughes, and uh, oh. along with Carmelita Tropicana. Um, and I was helping them 
write a 20-year retrospective on the performance art space, the WOW Cafe. It was a feminist space in, in uh, New York. And I got to meet all of these amazing luminaries. Peggy Shaw so was super cool. in that moment, um, Lois Weaver, right? Um, as well as just the folks who were part of that scene. Um, and one of the things that Holly says, it's like my favorite quote from her is, performance art is when what's happening in the audience is just as important as what's happening on stage. Mm. So when we, it was the premiere of Becoming a Man 127 Easy Steps uh, in Seattle. And uh, there was this, this step I had about getting a tattoo, right? Like get a tattoo, that's a step, right? In your, in your life, that's kind of yes. a significant moment. And every single one of the stories had a prop associated with it. So it was always interactive where I would say, okay, story 23, who's got my tattoo, right? And it was a, um, it was like a, you know, one of those, one of those, fake tattoos that you put mm -hmm. on. And so during, while I'm telling the story, I would put on the tattoo. That was what was intended to happen. I right? see. Except something happened with the tattoo when we were handing out all the props and no one had it. Oh, no. So I didn't have my prop. And I was like, how am I supposed to tell this story? Damn it, what do I do? And I just like on the fly was like, well, who has a tattoo? And some like it's Seattle, so like everybody yeah, has it too, right? Uh, and so like I just grabbed a person up from from the stage, from from the audience, and brought them up on stage, and was like, "Tell us the story of your tattoo." And it was profound because wow. when people get tattoos, generally there's a profound story behind yes. it. And it was such a profound story. It was like about like her dad dying, and like I mean, it was just like. Oh, amazing. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So I actually just decided from that moment on to always do it that way. And I, you know, we, we brought in the thing where it was like, then I would give them the tattoo. Like I would put the tattoo on them while they were talking about what their tattoo means. And like this, you know, so it was just this like amazing moment to, to remind people. Cause that is like sort of the whole thing with this, you know, it's not this like narcissistic navel gazing idea. It's that if this dummy has 127 stories, right? So do you. Mm -hmm. And for us to really value all of the moments that made us who, who we are, right? And to encourage people to tell a story about themselves and that every single one of your stories matters. And that every single one of us has like this huge epic multiplicity of stories inside of us, right? Like that's really the message of the show and what I'm trying to get people to do. So that moment, was it, it was like a reflection of that to the audience like oh yeah just so just in case you were thinking I would I thought I was the only one with the stories you know thanks random stranger for your very deep story and here we go and it also gives a sense of yeah who is the performer and who is the audience and it gets us all involved rather than just looking at a play and just having it be you know dark space and then white space it's yeah I love that I think that's really really cool um, we've spoken about how you were out quite early in the game with trans masculine representation. And we've talked about how, uh, you know, you were this, you were this figure, this public figure long before some others that are, are, are visible right now. I'd love to hear, um, you know, what's changed for you in terms of transmasculine representation and what's changed for you in terms of the past and what you had to go through and what it was like for you to perhaps be 
you know, one of the only figures out there who were doing what you were doing as compared to now, where it seems like there's some, there's a little more, not a lot, (laughs) but there's a little more representation out there. Well, uh, it's a relief. You know, I should never have been the only one. Yeah. And it wasn't ever the only one. Let's sure. be clear. Um, you know, there were always people before me. Um, I think it's really interesting. Uh, David Harrison was really the only other trans guy that who's, he was a performance artist in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, and he was really the only other trans guy that I could find who was doing work when I started doing work. Right. And now he's going to be on a TV show, you know, so so it's just like amazing, right? Like, like the sort of, and like I'm in TV and so it's all like that. Right. But, but yeah, I, it's less, it's less sort of in representation. Although I'm glad for that because there are so like, you know, I, I, I put together a panel for, for Sundance. And so it was like Sundance's first panel focusing on transmasculine creators. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was an embarrassment of riches and really difficult because it was like a panel, you can only have so many people, right? You you know, otherwise it just gets too unwieldy. But, you know, to make sure that we were, because we were talking about representation, we really had to do representation. So we really had to make sure that we had, I I wouldn't say like all the boxes checked, you know what I mean? But it was like a very deep process of going, let's make sure we have someone who's over 20 years out. Let's make sure we also have someone who's just in the start of their transition and all in between. Let's make sure that of course, like all of the intersections of race, right? Like, but also of what we do as creators. So, you know, writer, director, actor, right? Like, so the sort of 360 of making sure that we were really showing a well-rounded group of people and really giving everybody the opportunity to bring who they were to that was amazing. And it still happened in 2021. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the word transmasculinity was first printed. There's a bot that uh, there's a Twitter bot that that says when a new word when the New York Times prints a new word for the first time. So oh, it's like geez. proven 20 February 4th, 2020, the year of our Lord, 2020 was the first time transmasculinity was a word in the paper mm-hmm. of record in the United States. Do you know what I mean? So like, that's just to really sort of show you where we are. And I started, I was out doing trans representation in 2001, okay? So like, right, and I'm not the first, again, like all of those things, right? I stood on the shoulders of giants, right? Who, who were even less visible than I was. But to be now in this place where there are so many people you could talk to who represent so many, um, intersections of experience and and what this particular trans experience is right like it's wonderful it's it's beyond what I could possibly have imagined so I'd love to hear and the theme of this this episode what does gender binary mean to you and I'd really love to hear a little more about your struggle to fit and then the point where you got where you decided not to fit, to make you into who you are today? Well, so the gender binary is not a subjective term. It, it is a thing, right? Like, and actually it isn't a thing. Uh, it's, it's a construction. Yes. Uh, it's a culturally created construction uh, that says there are two, that, that 
erroneously states that there are only two sexes because that erases intersex people, right? Um, and for those of you who don't know what intersex is, right, you may have heard the term hermaphrodite. We don't say that anymore. That has also gone on the slag pile of history with other words that are offensive now, right? But um, intersex, you know, there are 17 different ways that a person that science has found so far that a person can be born neither typically male or female. And it's not about having like both sets of genitals whatsoever. It's about your hormones and your chromosomes and your physiology. And it's kind of a mosaic that fits together. Intersex is not like you can be intersex and not transgender. They are separate things. Okay. But for me, intersex is like nature saying, Hey, there's more than just two options here. Dummies. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Okay. Like, like as with literally everything else in the natural world, there is a huge spectrum of diversity for every single thing, including human biological sex. Okay. Gender, the idea of the gender binary, right, is this idea that since in this erroneous conception of the world, there are only male and female people, uh, then there can only be men and women, mm -hmm. which we all know is not true. And every 101 I give, I'm like, how, okay, if there's only, you know, one way to be a man or a woman, are we really saying that like Brad Pitt is the only way to be a man? And that like Angelina Jolie is the only way to be a woman? How many of you feel that way? Okay, so you're right, you're showing us already that there is a spectrum of people, right? There's a spectrum of ways of doing your gender. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So the gender binary isn't a thing. Um, and, you know, when we, if we want to talk about fundamentalism, just, what, a couple weeks ago, that QAnoner who got elected to Congress, Marjorie yes. Green, right, puts up a sign outside her office to say there are only two genders. Read the science. And it's like, well, actually, if you read the science, Marjorie, right, <laughs> uh, you'd find out your mind would be absolutely blown. Yes. But what it is is fundamentalism religious fundamentalism says to them, like, first of all, religious fundamentalism says that there are, that there are only men and women. Right. But also they say that women came from a man's rib. I mean, in Christian theology. Yes. So, I mean, the science, I just get lost right there. Do you well, know the, what I mean? Yeah. Like, the science of the fact. rib. Yeah. Black the science <laughs> of the rib is not so great. <laughs> We're not, that's where you start. We can't have a conversation about science. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like we can have a talk about belief and faith and I fully respect that. Okay. Like I understand we have that it's beyond our knowing and all of those things. And I, I'm really truly come from a place of respecting that, but that's not science. Yeah. And that's also a point I actually had the first time Scott and I met, I had just had an interview with a VA who was a fundamentalist Christian. And I had asked her to look at my page, my LinkedIn page, so she would know that my work is all about LGBTQIA+. But she, and then she, I think she was trying to proselytize me. And the thing that I said to her also was, you know, when I came out, I had two friends who were, uh, had had that background in their past and I was terrified. And they actually, the difference between what's going on right now, what she was trying to do to me and what they were doing was that they were actually able to question their beliefs. So yeah, re religion is personal and I understand the mythology, although that's I know that's offensive to say that, but the mythology of the rib and and so on and things like that, but there has to be a point, you know, if you do want to be you know, a true Christian and what the 
Christian religion presents as far as like loving all people, where you question parts of it and you modernize it and you bring it to change, right? Um, you would hope. So I guess I'm curious, and we've already touched upon this, is for you, you know, why is the gender binary such an important or such an important power structure for you to confront when it comes to um, GNC trans and especially trans masculine presence in public culture? Uh, you know, you can bring, you've already talked a little bit about that with religion, but you know, on the show, I really like for people to also bring like their personal experience into it. I'd love to hear how that resonates for you, like in your childhood or any experience you've had and, and really hits you hard. And that's how you know uh, the impact of that for that representation and for, for GNC people. Sure. So Uh, so I, I'm sort of thinking six different things at once. Um, one of the things is that when, so it's interesting, the more that I, that people start to hear about becoming a man in 127 easy steps and they see me a, you know, person who passes as cisgender, right? Like masculine white person, right? Yes. Uh, uh, people who actually would really enjoy the show like shut it off because they think that I'm like a binary person. Mm. I actually, I was non-binary before non-binary was a word. Okay. I'm very much in the Kate Bornstein school of like, you know, gender outlaw, right? Yes. Like I've always, like all of my work has been about tearing down this, this binary idea that there is anything to be in terms of being a man. And that's sort of part of the, what's funny about the title. Yes. 127 easy steps. It's like, this is ridiculous. Like there is no such thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, like what, you know, what is a man? So I just think it's interesting, like where we've come to, I think because we're all so damaged and over it. Do you know what I mean? That like the idea that I've, I've somehow lost my audience by even joking about being a man, mm -hmm. right? right? Which I'm not joking about being a man at the same time because there is an authenticity to my gender identity. Do you know what I mean? Like a hundred percent, right? But like it's, but as a critical thinker and as an artist, I'm questioning that. Yes. Right? That's what's happening there, right? Um, it was interesting. I have a wonderful relationship with a, with um, Michael Halberstam who happens mm. to be Jack Halberstam's brother. Oh, and Jack Halberstam was very important. Um, Jack, for, you know, formerly known as Judith, right? Who, and I think academically still formal or in the past known as Judith, right? Where wrote uh, female masculinity, which was like so important yes. to my development as a human. Um, and then who I ended up like working with, wrote the foreword to my book, like is just like an incredible, amazing human. And so I happened to meet Michael, uh, who is a, who runs a theater in Chicago called the Writers Theater. And so we've developed an artistic relationship over many, 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 many years. And I sent him uh, the video, some of some of our early uh, film work around the Becoming a Man project. Mm -hmm. And there's a step in there <clears throat> where I talk about, um, you know, I am one of the 40 plus percent of transmasculine people who report attempting suicide more than once. Yeah. And uh, I do a story about that. And in the, in the story, in the film version of it, um, 
I, I'm in a bathtub and I go underwater and I hold my breath. And so the, mm. the, I hold my breath for over like a minute and 30 seconds. So you're watching, you're seeing me, it's just me in this bathtub underwater and you're seeing my face change and you're seeing me struggling to breathe. And it's this visual representation of what it felt like to be so silenced. You know, it's, we talk about visibility a lot, but there's also a silence to it. Right. So it's multi-sensory, right. Um, where when you don't even exist in someone's imagination, telling your story, just being able to talk about who you are, it can, can feel impossible. And for the longest time, because I never had any representation, no one in, no one on TV, no one out there was showing me that I actually existed. I felt like I was holding my breath mm. that whole time. So it's this story about that. But what Michael's interpretation of that was, was he said, and I just love that piece of you in the bathtub where you're talking about toxic masculinity. Hmm. And I was like, I mean, he blew my mind about what my own work was about. Do you know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> yeah. That like, oh yeah. Like it's, it's not just the binary, it's toxic masculinity that's stopping me from being able to like breathe to be able to be who I am to be able to experience you know be you know what I mean like that was to be able to live and toxic masculinity is what is killing us too and this is the thing I know so many you know we can get into the deep stuff on the difference between butch and trans right sure uh we can get into the very open wound about lesbians and trans men which is has not changed in the 20 years that I've experienced it it's in fact gotten worse uh, there are so many people who are living in pain because of what toxic masculinity has done to being a man. Even myself, I spent four years of going to therapy weekly in, in suicidal pain because I couldn't bear to call as a feminist, as someone who had really like the work of feminism was done on me. Like I, I loved it. Right. Could not fathom being a man, mm -hmm. which now that I move around as a man, now that I am able to have actually like deep conversations with men kind of on a peer to peer level. Right. That's so sad because there are so many excellent men. Sure. And it's just like with religious fundamentalism, the, the really awful ones have the microphone and they're so loud, but there are so many amazing men who are doing such good work in the world, you know, that it's just such a shame that we're going to write them all off. And that's the power of toxic masculinity that we can, we're just going to write off all men. This is Dr. Shannon, the host of thinner section, diverse folks converse podcast. I just wanted to take a moment midway through the podcast to thank you for joining us to learn all about or to take community in the lives of people of color and queer people of color who are solopreneurs, public intellectuals, artists, social activists, influencers, and professionals. There aren't a lot of programs out there like The Intersection, and while I don't take contributions in terms of money, I do this as a free service as part of my business and just my way of giving back to the community. I would love it if you pass this on 
to people you know, and if you write reviews on YouTube, to just let people know what you think all about this podcast. It would really help to spread the word. Thank you so much. How do you, how do you think transmasculinity how do you think transmasculinity can transform toxic masculinity or how do you think it is? That's something that I've been thinking about a long time. I don't think it does that by itself. I think you actually have to have a, an analysis. I think and you have to have a feminist analysis mm-hmm. because we're fish in water. I mean, I, you know, I know so many toxic men. In fact, I went through a toxic masculine phase myself. You know, I feel like as someone who's was closeted, you know, heterosexual, one of the reasons my beard, one of my beard beards was that like, I would be with these toxic masculine men. And so I actually supported that as someone who had been identified as heterosexual for so long. And yeah, so it's interesting because I think about, you know, what makes a gender binary so normalized, what makes toxic masculinity so normalized, you know, to cisgendered people, uh, perhaps to heterosexual, you know, and queer people and trans people. I feel like we're all affected by it until, like you said, we do that work and we're able to recognize what it is and our part in it and the insidiousness of it, right? Um, Toxic masculinity is the most basic bullshit. Sure. But it's very hard because it's so basic. It's so fundamental to our, our conception of what masculinity is, right? That to see out of it and to see it for what it is, which is like a set of rules that make no sense for anybody, right? And that are actually really, really harmful. Right? Yes, That's to actually- everyone. Right. When people say like, what was the hardest thing for you? You know, it's like, it's like just that first step of seeing that, like, again, the basic bullshit of the gendered binary, Mm -hmm. right? That like, oh, it's not just either or there's much more to it. Okay. Like just getting over that step. And then much later down the road going, oh, because, you know, I think, I think actually trans masculine people are very vulnerable to toxic masculinity because it's this idea, like, if I want to be if I, if I, you know, I'm going toward masculinity. So it's like the easiest choice. Sure. Basic. Right. So people start doing, okay, if I want to be masculine, then I have to be muscly and be tough and be an asshole. And like, you know what I mean? Like, which is all that toxic masculinity nonsense because it's so easy to fall into because it's the lowest hanging fruit, all those things. Right. So it really takes a trans masculine person having a value of femininity, mm-hmm. a value of women. I mean, this is the thing that I don't understand about this sort of JK Rowling, Joe Karen Rowling feminism, right? Is like feminism taught me that my body, my choice. It taught me like, you know, like that sex is not destiny, right? Like, hello, like feminism is why I'm a man and feminism is why I'm a good man. And do you think... And I, we didn't really discuss this before as a question, or, but I'm curious about, you know, this sort of like different selves thing, 
I feel like, uh, the self that was closeted, right. And that was assigned the wrong gender. And then the self that comes out and then for, you know, people like me who are queer, the self who was closeted and I was part of entangled in all these things that gave me a certain social cultural capital. Uh, and then, you know, coming out as who I am today. Um, do you think that part of that feminism is get, uh, admitting the toxic masculinity cachet and social and cultural capital, right. In the, in the U S and worldwide, really, um, anywhere that colonialism has touched, right. <laughs> admitting that, but it also goes really deep. So that's the external part goes deep into also loving, you know, that loving that, that person who you were, even though it wasn't who you were and who you were representing, loving the, you know, loving the, loving the woman who you were. I don't know. What do you think about that? Cause I feel like I have spoken to, I have had transmasculine friends who have a real uh, dislike of their bodies back then. And then talk about other women's bodies and their bodies. And it, it was hard for me, even though it was part of their process and I was accepting, it was hard for me to hear that. Is there a, a point where there is like a self-love that goes back to the past all the way to now? I mean, you hope that's transition is integration. Like, I think the next step beyond transition is integration, right? Um, you know, yes, there are trans people whose lived experience as you know, in the wrong box, in the wrong body, right? Like who, who were forced because we were forced, you know, I can't, I, I'm still unpacking the pain of, of having been forced. Right. Yes. And look, the thing is it's, it's painful because too, like my mom really loved me, you know, and still loves me, you know what I mean? But like, she was complicit in that without even knowing it. Like, you know what I mean? I, I don't believe that if my mom knew what she was doing, she would have done it but she didn't have any other choice. Do you know what I mean? She didn't yes. have access to any other choice, right? And so there are just all these people who are just like harming, harming, harming. And, and that harm is, it's so great. It's so deep. It's just so awful. It's so awful, right? So I do not in any way begrudge people who burn up their lives, burn up all their old photographs of themselves yeah. and just say like, fuck that right? Like I have, I hold sacred space for that because it is a space of intense pain, right? Sure. I, because I, you know, I think in some ways becoming a man in 127 easy steps kind of saved me because it was like, I got, I had the idea for it and it became my way of life. And so I started looking at everything as a story, a story that begins and then ends and then a new story begins and then ends. So I started looking at life as an ever evolving process, always transitioning, always, right? What am I transitioning out of? What am I transitioning into? And so that gave me a sense of self-compassion that like I changed, you know? I did, you know, I made mistakes. I've done, this is not a hagiography. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not telling you the story of a saint here. I'm telling you like, you know, I talk about the toxic relationships that I was a part of, right? I talk about how I transitioned out of that. I go deep into going into anger management, right? Being the only person not court ordered to be there, hmm. right? And really saying like, I have to look at this because this is bad. This is not okay, 
right? And go, going through that process of unlearning the toxic masculinity that I was raised with and that still activates in culture today, right? Um, and what that process was like, and then recognizing like how toxic, you know, once you, once you can get out of it, it's like, whoa, amazing. You know what I mean? And like, you see, there's a, there's a whole step where I'm, I'm talking to myself, but I'm also talking to, I mean, we know the statistics on intimate partner violence, mm -hmm. right? In LGBTQIA plus people specifically. So I'm talking to everybody who's in that relationship, which so many of us get into, Right talking about like just wrecking and showing it for what it is and saying you might you're here this is what you're doing and this is what you're thinking and this is what how you could get through it you know what I mean and that's like a very important urgent story so it's like and I'm I'm terrified and ashamed and all of these things like I don't want people to know that I was a bad person at a period of time in my life but what I want them to know more and I care about how much they're going to judge me. I want them to know that they can change, mm -hmm. that they can do that work, that they can move forward, that they can make amends, that they can, you know what I mean? There's just so much we have to change like over and over and over and over again. You know what I mean? What do you feel like is the biggest impact you've had so far with becoming a man in 127 easy steps? hard to say um I mean I know like it's sort of two things you know at least two things right like I know that I've had enough of an impact to be censored okay I was told that the show could not happen uh, when was Florida in 2009 okay uh, Right. So, you know, you're doing something really right when they don't sure. I, I, I often say if like <laughs> people walk out and they seem really huffy in the middle of your performance, that's a good thing. <laughs> right. um, I mean, one of my favorite stories to tell about it, just you brought it up about the sitcom thing. So we had this like crazy run in Atlanta. It, 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 like something happened, like it got on the radio or something. And like the show just like sold out. It's wonderful. And we extended it like nine shows. Because like people just wanted to see it. We were like, okay, great. You know, I didn't have anything else on my calendar, you know? <laughs> so, um, and this group of dudes showed up and this, we were like in a small black box. We were at seven stages and little five points. In a small black box theater. So like, like seven dudes showing up, like two rows, like total... I was just like, what are you? And they were not the like P flag dads. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you're really like, and they came in, they were all boisterous and they had beers and they were just like, ah, you know what I mean? And I'm like, who are these people? And they sit right there. There's such a massive presence in this audience. I'm like, okay, this is weird, but okay. And you know, the reason why I got censored is in the live show, I used to take off all my clothes. In the first five minutes, I would take off all of my clothes and then draw on my body in lipstick while the letter that my psychologist had to write about how I have gender identity disorder, right, was like projected above my, you know, and so it was just like, look, let's just get this out of the way so that you're not sitting there wondering like what surgeries I've had or whatever. Cause at the time I hadn't had any, right? So I was just like, here we go, right? And you watch people just be like, Pfft. I should also mention that when I ask anybody who saw the show in its in that day, I say, what do you remember about the show? Literally nobody says the nudity. Like, <laughs> even if I say, do you remember how I took off all of my clothes and drew on my body and lipstick? They're like, 
no, you did. I mean, like, it's like, <laughs> like it's so funny, right? So that happens. We go through this whole, you know, I tell all these stories, whatever. And then at the very end of the show, what I would say is, look, I don't know how to end this show because like my life hasn't ended, right? So I have to be a man about it. And what that means is I have to look people in the eye, shake hands firmly, say thank you, and know when to leave. Mm. And I would leave and I wouldn't come back for a bow. I would just leave the room. But the my director was like, people really need to see you again. Like they, really, they, need, they need that. So you have to give it to them. So I would stand at the door to the theater and I would shake everybody's hand. I would look in the eye, shake hands firmly and say, thank you. So these dudes come out and they were just like, and they literally, they said, the title of the show, like we thought it was like the redneck comedy tour. <laughs> like they really thought it was Jeff Foxworthy. Like they just saw the title of the show that it was like a big deal. It was like in a calendar section or whatever. Right. So they just like put all this assumption and they were like, I, I never even heard of this before, but you're sitting up there and you couldn't be more different than me. And you're like telling my stories. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. I talked with these guys for like 20 minutes. That's so cool. And so like, to me, not that like, I mean, I honestly don't give a shit about like whether traditional heterosexual cis people love my work. Like that's not what I'm in this for. (laughs) You know what I mean? But the fact that like, what what it was for me was that those dudes saw themselves in me. Mm -hmm. That's radical. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful way to kind of circle around to what we were saying with the toxic masculinity and people in the queer trans community thinking they need to emulate that, right? And it actually got flipped by seeing your work. Yeah. You know, I love that. Um, I'd love to hear a little more of, you've said some of the, the impact that it's had upon people and perhaps people you hadn't expected to have that kind of impact on. But I'd love to hear the future of the show and I want you to like dream big. Like, I'm really curious, like, what do you hope the future of becoming a man in 127 easy steps would be? And how would you like to see it evolve? And you can even think, how would you like to see yourself evolve too, alongside it? No, I'm very engaged in that right now. So look, I'm an artist and I've been doing the same show for 14 years. Um, so I want to get this, I want to get the video parts. I want to get it all. Like I want to get the video, the podcast and the book in the most accessible place where anyone around the world who wants to engage the story can see it, can experience it, can, can be moved by it in whatever ways they're going to be. And I want to do something else. Yes. What <laughs> you know, like so you 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 have been doing this for a long time. It's your you know, say my life's work. Yeah, it's your life's work. It's like this opus, but it doesn't mean that it ends here, and it doesn't mean that this is it for you. That totally makes sense. I but, wanna, I've been I've already been breaking ground in Hollywood. At, you know, I've had historical firsts. I just want to keep doing that. What you know, the whole reason that I ever did a one-man show in the first place is because I just wanted to be an actor. But because I'm a transgender actor, I had to change the world a little bit before I could achieve my dreams. And so now I just want to 
be an actor and I want to be a producer. I want to be someone who's helping trans stories, whether they're trans or not. You know, I want to play cis roles. I just played one for, for HBO on um, equal, you know, like I, I just, I want to do that thing that everybody's talking about, which is just be an artist. Yes. What I want. So your, I, I, your idea is less so to have like another show, just like, I want to say just like this one, but one that is maybe centered around your life or to, you know, continue, you know, you're, you know, 187 step. you just keep extending it, but you know, like, just like generation Q, it could be like the next generation. Um, instead of doing that, you really are interested in now continuing to break ground in Hollywood, continuing to, you know, set out to, to fulfill your, your, your life's purpose, which the show is certainly a part of. And it sounds like it, it grew and, and, and uh, metamorphosized into all sorts of things that perhaps you didn't expect. But now this is your next stage. Now you want to have that representation, that acknowledgement, that, uh, that standing in, in Hollywood or perhaps even other theatrical platforms. I mean, I just, I, I, like every actor out here in Hollywood, I, I want to have a little bit of power, Mm -hmm. you know, and I want to use that power in the ways like I want to use that power to create the world that I want to see. Yes. That makes total sense. So what that will look like, I don't have any idea. You know, it could be that the, you know, people talk about the IP, the intellectual property of this work. Someone might want to turn it into a series. Like, I don't know. Right. Like, okay, that's fine. You know what I mean? But I also, it's so funny. It's like Elliot Page just transitioned and I want to go into that world where like to get roles like Elliot Page has had. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I want to be able to be in that amazing imaginary world. And, you know, the idea of being a trans person doing that, being openly trans, right? So it's, I'm the first openly trans actor not openly out, I should say, because openly, openly is not a good way to talk about it because it makes it seem like the folks who, for whatever reason, can't be open about it are hiding or something, which is, it just puts like a negative judgment on it. You know what I mean? But I'm the first out trans man to it, like, I'm the first out trans actor in daytime television. I'm the first out trans man to have an Emmy nomination for an acting role. Right. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it was more difficult, you know, so Joey Soloway, mm-hmm. even, even, um, even Elliot, they have major nominations, but it was before they were out. Yes. Right. So to have gotten it while being out was very hard to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and to continue that as an out trans person is the trailblazing, you know, so yeah. I, you know, I don't think I have much of a choice in terms of doing that, but I do want to do it in a bigger way just because I've worked this hard and I, and, you know, you just, you want, you, you know, your, your definition of success keeps growing. I've already achieved my dreams, right? Like yes. we starred in a movie. So I am literally a movie star. I have, you know, I won awards, like all these, I mean, I've been very lucky, very fortunate in that way. So I'm already there and now it's like, okay, how far can I go? How, how much more trail can I blaze so that it's easier for the folks coming up now? So this is like 
a continuation, what I see is like your legacy work so that you can continue to uh, pave the way for yourself, but then also for those who follow you as well. How can we get involved in this project, in the, the film, Becoming a Man in 127 Easy Steps, but also any other projects that you're involved in? Do you have any uh, information, any you know instructions for us on how to continue to be in touch with you, to get alerts about your work and different appearances? Sure. I mean, well, so, so for becoming a man, like the thing that we really need help with, we're still, it's an independent project, right? So it's not like I have like a studio giving us all this money. It's been amazing. We've managed to raise over $130,000 in increments of less than $100 from people, right? Like that's just, and these are just people who saw the show over 13 years. Do you know what I mean? So um, having that support, we still, you know, we're, we have a crew of trans and queer people, people of color, like we've, we're doing it really the way that we should be doing it, right? And I need to pay those people to help me finish <laughs> this project so that we can get it out into the world because um, I'm not going to not pay people, right? Um, so we have a Patreon. Oh, great. Patreon is a wonderful way that, you know, for folks who don't know what it is, it's a, it's a, you, you can, you can give us just $1, right? You, you, you do a dollar per story, you get a story, right? And you only pay when you, when I do something. So you're not, you know, you're not adding to that. Um, and, and that shows people that there's a momentum. It shows them that there's an audience and it helps, you know, it's sort of a crowdfunding way of doing it. Now you can do more than a dollar, which would be amazing too, but <laughs> Um, and we're also represented by the Gotham, which is an independent film uh, platform where you can give money as a tax donation, uh, as a, you know, as a tax, uh, right? Like you get a tax break on it. Uh, and that it also helps us. So I can send you the links. And That'd be great. And I'll actually put it at the end of the podcast so people will yeah. see it on the screen. I think the number one thing that people can do to support any, any one of us, right? Yes. You have to participate. You have to click on the thing. You have to follow. You have to like. You have to watch 10 minutes of, of the work minimum, right? Because this is, this is something that's very difficult that a lot of trans creators find is that we don't even get supported by our own communities, mm. right? So we're already, it's not like, you know, everything's about numbers because it's about money, right? So... I know that my project really helps the mainstream. And so like PFLAG is like an, an amazing organization that parents of friends of lesbians and gays, but they're really very focused on trans stuff now, right? Like oh, that's they're, great. they're amazing. And that is very much an important audience for this. It's people who, who love us, who want to understand our stories, who are out being cis and straight and having their privilege in their lives so that they can help us, right? They can yes. it, right? So, you know, that's one thing, but... And I understand too, you know, when I had the bold and the beautiful role, it was a really amazing role. They wrote it really right. It was really well done. And there were so many people in my community who said, I don't know if I can watch it because I'm just too scared that they're going to screw it up. And I, I don't mm. want to be hurt like that. So I know that it comes from a place of trauma that we don't necessarily want to engage trans work because we're scared of how they're going to get it wrong because they get it wrong so sure. much. Right. But when a trans creator is involved, 
right? I understand that for work that's made by cis people about trans people, but when a trans creator is involved, your vote for it by showing up for it, by following it on social media, by supporting it in all the ways that you possibly can, especially with word of mouth and shares and all of those things, like that is gold to us, right? Because if you don't support it, like who else is going to? Sure. I mean, so really, I think for, for the cultural contributions of trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming people, you have to show up for it, share it, signal boost it, talk about it, tell people how good it is, get out there, get behind those people because you have no idea the struggle that we're yes. in. And I think just getting to the point of, you know, the courageousness to create this, whatever it is that's being created, putting the work into it, assembling a crew, having the money or having it just be this, you know, this very inexpensive endeavor, but all the labor that goes into it and then not getting the support, I would think would be really hurtful. And I would say too, you know, we're a highly critical audience because we have so much opportunity to be because cis people make our stories and make mistakes, right? I would ask, not for myself, but for everybody else, if you're a queer or trans person watching work that is created by a queer or trans person and they don't do it perfectly, they're showing their process, they're, right, like, I'm just saying we need support. We're creating culture and culture isn't perfect, right? I I know also myself and so many creators like myself, we fear our community. We fear the critical response of our community, which is actually a critical response to cis people that has become a habit that we do to our trans folks, right? To our trans creators. So I want to say like, can we just, especially we're entering a new world right now with the way that COVID is, is, abating and hopefully, you know what I mean? Like we we have the ability to create a new world right now in a way that we never did before. And so I wanna ask queer and trans people to really like give queer and trans created work some deep love. If there's something you didn't like about it, fine. But maybe like, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's in the activism of not letting perfect be the enemy of good and of like building queer culture because we need that. There's also a lot of sometimes energy that's put toward, you know, battling people who are saying the wrong thing, who are cisgendered or who are on the right. Whereas people like us and we're trying to create culture for queer and gender non-conforming people or we are gender non-conforming. So it's like, why not turn it toward that, right? Because that's more generative. That's a really good piece of advice. So to close out the intersection, every time I ask for my guests to just give me one takeaway, something that you came to in the course of this conversation that perhaps you hadn't considered before or something really important to you that came out of the conversation for you. I feel like I had that, that moment where I was like, wow, I'm really like learning something here. But I'm so sort of in it. So I'm like, oh, what is it? <laughs> like, like, I was just sort of having it. You know, I just, I think it's just so valuable for us to talk, you know what I mean? And f- to have these kind of deeper conversations, right? Like that's what I so appreciate to be, to have the intersections that we have, right? Mm-hmm. 
the differences that that we have, but to like engage each other across them as opposed to deciding that there's nothing that we could possibly learn from one another. Yes. So I just really am grateful to you for the space, you know, thank you for giving me space. Thank you for supporting me with your platform. Sure. Um, and thank you for being such a deep thinker and asking these questions instead of the like, when did you transition? <laughs> yes. Surgery? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, those are the questions I'm avoiding precisely. I One of the things I'd said to <laughs> well, yeah. say that again. I'm sorry. You don't know how rare that is. Yes. No, I, I, this is the reason why, like I do my work and why I started the intersection was to have these conversations. So thank you so much for coming onto the show. I feel like one of the things I learned was the scope of, of your performance that that's now a film. And just to understand that performance art aspect, the interaction and how now that interactivity that we need right? As queer people and as gender non-conforming people, um, we can continue that online. You know, we can, we can show, uh, we can show interactions that are, that can be the spirit of what you did in your, in your film online. And I hope that the listeners of the intersection will take that to heart and really, you know, think, try to think, in a way that is supportive and try to think, put yourself in the shoes of perhaps someone who's creating something, whether it's just a content creation or something that they spent six months doing to create this film with a crew. Uh, it's really easy to, to throw shade and to give some catty comments because it kind of boosts your social capital, right? And your visibility, but it's, it's much harder and I think much more valuable to do what, exactly what you said and support those few artists who are having the the courage and 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 this and the support that they had to create you know these wonderful works so thank you so much scott and um scott turner schofield and we so the the title of our uh, episode was countering the fundamentalist ripple with trans stories media and culture i feel like we did just that on this episode and you can find information on scott's projects from his Patreon page and other links. It'll come right after the program on the screen. It'll also be within the text of this video on YouTube. Thank you again for joining us. You've just finished an episode of the Intersection Diverse Folks Converse podcast. I'm so happy that you decided to join us and you finished the whole podcast to hear all about the stories and lives and the experiences of our guests. I would like to just offer you right now an opportunity to continue to listen to us. You can always find us here at Anchor under the intersection colon diverse folks converse folks f-o-l-x or you can find us on youtube under dr shannon wong learner l-e-r-n-e-r youtube channel we also have a facebook page also under the intersection diverse folks converse that you're welcome to join to find out all about upcoming episodes and guests Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.